Okay. Um, hello, I'm Thea Rio Francos, and I'm the host of today's episode of Climate Crisis: Time for a New Society, a podcast collaboration between the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation and Verso Books. I'm joined today by David Hughes, professor at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey, and the author of a book recently published with Verso, Who Owns the Wind, as well as Mika Minio energy economist and climate and energy lead at the Trade Union Congress, as well as co-founder of the UK-based consultancy Transition Economics. Welcome, David and Mika. Coming off the heels of a hugely disappointing COP26, I wanted to start with a broad question for both of you about the political economy of the energy transition. One of the clearest messages sent by representatives of the world's biggest economies and biggest polluters is that there will be no guarantee of sufficient public investment, either within those countries or in the form of global north-south redistribution and reparations in order to combat the climate crisis and trigger a rapid energy transition. Instead, there seems to be an abiding faith that markets and the private sector will pick up the slack. In your view, what is wrong with this belief? Why do we need a muscular, vibrant public sector to take on the crisis and coordinate a just transition? I think there are two problems with leaving um, the climate, leaving the carbon uh, decarbonization to markets. Um, On the mitigation side, of course, markets tend to commoditize stuff. And so what we're seeing is that CO2 is being commoditized. Um, And if you commoditize something that can't be measured easily, then you open the markets up to a great deal of corruption and and accounting tricks. And I think that's exactly what we saw at the COP with the efforts uh, to to instantiate uh, carbon capture and storage and sequestration in forestry and so on. Um, These are just ways to burn more fossil fuels, as we know. Uh, The other problem with markets has to do with the adaptation or resilience side. Um, Markets tend to concentrate advantages in certain places and disadvantages in other places. And so uh, a market in resilience or an adaptation will probably benefit the better off first and most uh, uh, most, uh, uh, substantially. Um, so those are those are some basic. There are all sorts of other reasons that one might want to involve uh, the public sector, but I can see that markets are not actually actually suited to this kind of job that we have at hand. I agree with a lot of that, um, and yes, also thanks a lot uh, for having me on here. It's great to be here. It's great to be discussing this. Um, it's also quite um, it's also quite fun because as well as um. Uh, as well as a new book, the book that's just come out uh, um, uh, called Who Owns the Wind, uh, we actually also wrote a report called Who Owns the Wind, uh, I think back in 2017, at the same time as I think David also wrote an article called Who Owns the Wind. Um, so it's interesting that a lot of us are thinking, a lot of us were thinking on opposite sides of the Atlantic about who owns this <laughs> and, and what does it all mean. <clears throat> um, in terms of markets and the private sector i think it's i agree with a lot of points about markets but i think it's also um it's also just about the private sector because actually a lot of the energy sector which has been privatized for example in the uk not so much generation but um 
let's say the distribution networks where electricity has moved around and the net, uh, transmission networks moved around from whether it's power plants or wind turbines etc to ultimately to energy users those are <clears throat> a monopolies those are, are run large in a non-marketized system by the private sector for private profit um, so i guess even in contexts where we don't have a market but the private sector is given the lead and the power <clears throat> The, that's problematic. Um, it's very like we've got a lot of experience in the UK of wealth extraction by corporations from what are ultimately public goods, public resources, public services. And that's the case with much of our energy system and is particularly a, a risk with the kind of the, the necessary growth that we need to see in climate action and climate infrastructure, whether that's <coughs> renewable uh, energy or increased transport mechanisms or how we transform our homes. And when we see the private sector taking the lead, then there's a focus ultimately on extracting profits. And that becomes the priority, not delivering the climate action at the pace that we need to see or delivering it in a... Um, uh, at a level of quality that we need to see or ensuring democratic control and democratic shaping by people or ensuring that the jobs that are created are quality jobs that are sufficient jobs all of those things are necessary if we want to achieve that safe and just climate future that isn't that we need and those things are also necessary to ensure that people believe in that climate transition over time whereas if we allow it to be subjugated to profit extraction, then that's in of itself problematic and also leads to uh, a significant risk that there'll be backlash against climate action because people go, well, this is harming me. This is harming my life. Uh, this is impacting on my livelihood. So therefore, I don't want climate action. I was just really going to applaud what Mika said. I mean, um, the energy transition has been described mostly as an engineering problem, a math problem, a technological problem. And it is true that we could solve this uh, decarbonization, this energy transition uh, very simply through engineering, but that won't be equal enough and it won't build the kind of mass movement that we need to overcome the power of the fossil fuel sector. So absolutely, a democratic publicly led, publicly owned energy transition is the only one that will succeed. And we will come back uh, near the end of this conversation to exactly that issue of the relationship between politics and energy and what it would look like to build a mass movement for the type of transition that both of you uh, advocate for um, and that I also uh, subscribe to. Um, Let's let's zoom in on something a little more specific before we come back to that question of political program and strategy. Um, I want to talk uh, particularly about one sector of, of the renewable energy economy that both of you focus on in, in your work, which is wind power. So I'll start with David. Um, in your latest book, you state that we need to love and embrace wind turbines for the sake of saving the planet. What do you mean by this? And, and more specifically, why is wind energy so important at the global scale and also at the national scale within the U.S. if we want to decarbonize our economies? Well, I don't mean to privilege wind over solar. I, I think they're both uh, absolutely vital. Um, they both harvest abundant energy resources that are 
quite well distributed. Um, wind does combine a little better with agriculture than solar does. And for reasons of the price of the production price, the generation price per kilowatt, wind is quite a bit cheaper than solar in Spain, and I believe in the UK as well, which is why it's, it's gone further in both countries. Um, let's see. Uh, I think that we, we absolutely, the part about loving wind turbines gets to this question of public support. Um, it's not enough for people to tolerate them. It's really necessary for people to embrace them. And we have to create the conditions under which communities will embrace and in fact recruit wind turbines into their neighborhoods so as to speed this energy transition along very rapidly. Uh, but, but there is one caveat to all that, which is I think that movements have um, developed too much of a kind of fetish around the wind turbine, the kind of iconography of, iconography of the, the three-bladed uh, wind turbine is ubiquitous in demonstrations and things right now. Uh, a wind turbine by itself doesn't reduce carbon emissions, and neither does a solar panel. What reduces carbon emissions is actually reducing carbon emissions by burning less in the way of fossil fuels. So in, 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 to a certain extent, all this investment in renewables is a little bit of a distraction from what really needs to happen fundamentally, which is divestment from fossil fuels. Um, thanks for that. That that makes sense. And we're going to dig in in a little bit uh, uh, into those local land use politics and what might make communities not just, as you say, tolerate, but but actively embrace uh, and take ownership, you know, no pun intended, uh, over over the wind sector uh, in their communities. Um, let me go to Micah and then we'll circle back to, to that piece. Um, what what is the role and potential of wind energy in a just transition for the United Kingdom? And and if you could also say a bit more, and this maybe follows on some of your earlier comments about the kind of economics of the wind sector, who currently owns wind energy? I get the sense that it is private domination, but not per se a market mechanism. Um, who benefits from it economically and how might this be changed for a more just and equitable form of wind power? So, so I guess wind, and particularly offshore wind, is um, is widely seen as a success story uh, in the media, and by governments, and by companies in the UK. The UK has more offshore wind uh, installed than any other country in the world. We used to have more than the entire rest of the world put together. Um, that's no longer the case, and um, and that uh, rapid deployment is going to accelerate over the next nine years at least and probably beyond that <coughs> and that's uh tends to be described as a as a success in driving down the costs of wind that obviously has happened globally but um but the particularly in offshore wind that's largely been because so much of it has been deployed quickly in the uk um but as you said, we need to ask core questions. Well, who who benefits from that, <clears throat> and and what what does that mean on a broad level? Because ultimately, of course, in the first place, the wind doesn't really belong to anyone. If if it belongs to anyone, then it belongs to the people. Um, uh, it, it's a it's a, a common a common resource. The the seabed, to a certain extent, belongs belongs to the queen largely, and then can be licensed out. Um, but really, essentially, if it belongs to the queen, it should be belonging to the people. Um, now, when you look at who who does own uh, wind in the UK, it it is actually a majority majority owned by 
public um, public companies, publicly owned enterprises. Um, they're Norwegian publicly owned, Danish publicly owned, Swedish, German. In fact, the city of Munich, which is very far in the south of Germany, a long way away from the sea, owns a big part of an offshore wind farm off the coast of Wales. Um, so it's, <laughs> it's majority publicly owned, but not by... Uh, not by people living anywhere near those wind farms. And there is um, there's one, one wind farm in, the, in Scotland, in fact, which is uh, publicly owned by a, a research centre. Um, it's offshore at, uh, at low tide, and when the tide... Sorry, it's onshore at low tide. It's on the beach, effectively. So when the tide comes in, then it's in the water, and when the tide goes out, it's on the beach. Um, and that's not really enough if we're going to see people benefit if we're going to see people ultimately uh, have revenues that are redistributed to the public um, if we're going to see the level of coordination that's required to create the good jobs um, because of the <clears throat> the privatized process that we've seen um, there's actually very comparatively few jobs in offshore wind in the UK now Offshore wind plays a large part of the, the promise of green jobs. That we don't, you don't need to worry about fossil fuel jobs going because there will be jobs in offshore wind. And then and will be the Saudi Arabia of wind. And many, many, there's a lot of promises like this from companies, from government, and also from the green movement and the climate movement. And then when it comes to it, actually, there's far fewer jobs than, than our promise. And a lot of jobs, and we'll come to it later, but aren't on, on the standard we'd like to see. And that's largely because... Of the ownership models and also the um, the the way costs have been driven down is by running an auction process. So there is a, a market element here within it, and um, and that auction process tries to minimise costs at at, uh, at every level. And ultimately, if you can pay your maritime workers who are guarding your your cable laying, if you can pay them below the minimum wage, then you can drive down the costs of offshore wind. And that is precisely what happens. So that, I guess, that that structure, the economic structure is, while leading to cheaper wind, is also creating a lot of issues in terms of what it means for labor and for jobs. Um, that makes a lot of sense and kind of leads us well into our next set of questions, which are going to be around the politics of, of who supports wind projects and who does not. So the first uh, question around that I want to pose to David, and then I have a kind of parallel question for you, Mika. Um, so one of the contentious aspects of, of wind power is the kind of local land use politics. It's interesting to maybe think through how, how offshore wind skirts around that particular point of contention while potentially raising other points of contention around who benefits economically and, and where, where the job growth is. But um, but David, you you look at at um, onshore wind, let's say, um, and and you look at some of the conflicts and local pushback around those those wind farms, um, and you make an argument that in order to address this resistance and and diffuse it, it's necessary to put the resource of wind itself, not not the turbines, uh, though maybe that too, but the wind itself as as a form of public ownership or kind of wind commons. So. Before getting into why having common ownership of the wind uh, might transform conflict into community embrace, um, I want to understand a bit more what the basis is for this local pushback, which you can read a lot about in the news and in the U.S. Um, and different, you know, different opinions exist. Some people think that communities or neighborhoods that push back against um, 
against wind farm, wind farms, excuse me, are like funded by the Koch brothers, which are, you know, for those that not in the U.S., they're a right wing reactionary uh, uh, family that funds lots of lots of right wing causes. Um, and they are very tied to the fossil fuel industry. So they have funded anti-renewable energy type of stuff. So one analysis or interpretation is that these local communities or neighborhoods are funded by entities like the Koch brothers. Um, another very different interpretation is that it's a valid local response to so-called big wins. So to big wind corporations, whether private or public, as Mika noted, uh, some of them are state owned from other countries, um, a response to big wind dispossessing uh, local land, uh, threatening other land uses and and other economic livelihoods. Um, or is it, you know, both and sometimes it's one, sometimes it's the other. Um, and then finally, how does your proposal for commonly owned wind address this uh, this local conflict? Um, and and transform the wind sector into something that operates quite differently. All right. Yeah, there's a lot packed in there. Um, so my, my book, Who Owns the Wind, is the ethnography of a, uh, I'm, because I'm an anthropologist, it's, it's written as an ethnography of the, the village in the world, possibly, that's most surrounded by wind turbines in southern Spain by the Strait of Gibraltar. And when I began this research a few years ago, I thought this is going to be a kind of not in my backyard, selfish proposal, a selfish movement of um, kind of local local uh, parochialism, um, perhaps funded by fossil fuel, certainly driven by a kind of climate denialism. And I didn't find that at all. Uh, I found no link to the fossil fuel industry uh, by these 400 villagers. Um, most of them were, are very knowledgeable and concerned about climate change. Um, but they're also concerned about their landscape, um, which is a kind of rolling hills uh, of wheat and sunflower and cattle. And they've grown up there. They're the, sorts, they're the sort of environmentalists or conservationists who value a kind of agrarian countryside. And they see it being ruptured and turned into a set of steel machines. So their environmental aesthetic is, is deeply uh, damaged by this uh, by the intrusion of these wind farms. Um, and it does not help at all that the wind farms are owned by corporations uh, and sitting on top of very large estates owned by uh, medievally derived aristocratic latifundista families. So most of my conversations began with the aesthetic and then moved on to kind of replaying the, the protests and negotiations that happened. And people said, well, you know, we would have accepted all this steel and carbon fiber and so on if we got some money from this to hold us through the winter when the tourist economy isn't isn't creating employment uh but they're like they got nothing from it uh they got no employment um they got um no in no revenue at a collective level either and and the reason for that has to do exactly as you said with the question of who owns the wind and so a lot of people including me have written written very good um uh, analyses under this 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 question who owns the wind um i'm actually less concerned with the with the, the steel of the turbine and the transmission towers and so on i'm less concerned with the infrastructure than i am with the resource the resource is a lot more valuable than the infrastructure and of course once you control the resource you can also control everything downstream in the commodity chain and i'll tell you how valuable the resource is we get uh continuously 11 terawatts from 
fossil fuels. There are estimated to be 72 terawatts of wind on land in accessible places at tower height. So this is an enormous resource frontier um, that will be claimed and owned by somebody. Um, and a lot of people will make money and it could be another kind of uh, colonial situation, right? Um, that's the way it's shaping up to be. Uh, bizarrely, though, nobody's really fighting over owning the wind. Um, you know, various industries and sectors are kind of falling into a convention. And the convention is that the landowner owns the wind. So the reason why uh, countries with offshore wind farms are a little bit fortunate is that the, uh, the state usually owns uh, the continental shelf and, and always owns the continental shelf and the territorial waters and so on. So the wind above that sea and seabed is also publicly owned. When you get onshore, it becomes much more complicated. And so what we've seen in this part of Spain, as I said, is these aristocratic families um, get royalties from the wind. They get a percentage of the value of the electricity produced by every turbine. And then they also get ground rent on the pads or the sort of cleared area around each turbine. You know, that's, that's legitimate in a private property system to my mind. What's not legitimate is the informal way that uh, the landowners have grabbed wind rights. Um, and so we see this kind of huge resource grabbing happening now in a, a, in a field which is so much larger than fossil fuels um, and very little contestation around it. So that's where I'd like to take the battle. Um, I think it's fine to fight for nationalization or for commons around land and around the infrastructure. But I also think we have to grab the root resource as a public good for the public. Fascinating. Um, uh, and thank, thanks for laying that all out. And I think it, it now is clear based on your field work, how that would not just kind of address community concerns in a minimally tolerable way, but really transform the relationship between people and this energy resource and their local environment and, and kind of have more autonomy over their, their lives and, and the transition itself. Um, Mika, let me turn to you to go to a different area of contention, though you're welcome to comment on, on what, what David said, if you'd like, um, which is the labor and jobs angle, which you've already brought up. Um, so we, we hear a lot um, in the U.S. and I imagine in the U.K., uh, you know, first of all, I actually want to just lay out before getting into more specifics that there is this very stereotyped and simplistic idea that there's a trade-off between jobs versus the environment. That's a kind of older idea. And now more recently, like jobs versus climate, you know, versus addressing the climate crisis. And I think, you know, we could critique all all evening, like why that's a simplistic narrative, uh, why you can find lots of climate and environmental heroes in the labor movement, for example, and also why, you know, a just transition and a Green New Deal type of approach would generate a lot of dignified jobs. Um, but that simplistic narrative obviously prevails because it, it suits the fossil fuel industry and it also uh, you know, suits other powerful actors to divide the working class against itself. Um, Though, you know, I think we get a, a kind of aspect or a, a spin on this narrative coming from the union movement itself, which is a skepticism perhaps well-earned skepticism of a just transition and a more specific concern that we don't see the levels of union density and of unionization in green sectors that we might like to see on the left, right? Um, and so that kind of reinforces this, this narrative. Um, so, 
given all of that, like how, what what is to be done to make sure that we have the support of working class people in general and of labor unions and labor uh, leaders specifically um, for a just transition? How how to kind of cut through this Gordian knot um, of this this binary framing and and move towards a, a worker centric and worker led transition to renewable uh, energy economy? Thanks. Yeah. So I think it's partly about how that framing corresponds to the reality that we are building and fighting for. <clears throat> so um, I guess to come to people's, uh, if, I th- if we talk about people's experiences working in, in relevant jobs to this conversation. So if we think about high carbon jobs in the UK, whether that's a job working in a coal plant, for example, West Burton A coal plant is scheduled to close 2022, most of our coal plants have already closed. There's a couple left. They're all, they're all closing pretty eminently. Um, those jobs are pretty high quality. There's pretty good contracts, but they're significantly higher pay than in the surrounding community. They are well unionized um, and they exist. They are actual jobs in the present that, that in terms of West Burton, A, 157, I think it is, people have those jobs at the moment. Um, while the jobs uh, in renewables and the jobs that, that I guess we we want to see and that we are regularly promised by government, by companies and by the climate movement, including by a lot of us who are advocating for a just transition in a Green New Deal, those jobs mostly don't exist. They're, they're not there jobs that we want to create, <clears throat> that need to be created, but but they're just not there yet. Uh, and when they've been promised for 20 years, as they have been here, and they're still not there, then it's quite hard to get trust from the people working in the coal, coal power plant uh, that there actually is a job for them to move into in renewables. And especially when they then have a look at the jobs, the, the, the ones that do exist, and, and find, well, actually, they'd be paid less or they wouldn't get a, con- a long-term contract or um, there's <clears throat> less strong health and safety standards or, for example, even in some of when it's the same companies. So Scottish Power, or which is actually Spanish-owned by Iberdrola or SSE, um, they've largely been moving out of their, their coal plants, their gas plants, mostly but not entirely within the UK, and both of them have moved significantly into offshore wind. <clears throat> they also own other energy infrastructure. And there's quite significant strong level of unionization within the companies in the existing divisions the old ones those corporations have set up new divisions to uh, run their offshore wind uh, units that's new units and within those units they are not letting the unions in they're saying we're going to have a new model of interacting workers more collaborative more friendly less confrontational so please unions not here and again <laughs> that makes it hard for people working in unions <clears throat> to say yes these are good jobs don't worry about it um, what it clearly means is that <clears throat> as trade unionists we need to be saying we want these jobs they are necessary jobs. We need jobs in offshore wind. We need to have not just the jobs in operating and maintaining them. We need to have the jobs in building them. We need to be building the components, the turbines, the towers, um, the nacelles. Uh, and those jobs need to be union jobs and they need to be quality jobs. And they also need to be, wherever possible, pathways directly for uh, high carbon workers, for fossil fuel workers to move from their existing work into those clean jobs. Because when we can provide that, when that is a reality, when the jobs are 
actually there, when they're quality, when they're, uh, when they're unionized, when there's decent pay, and when you can move from working in an offshore uh, oil and gas platform to working in offshore wind without having to look on the market, without being on benefits, without being around work, but knowing that there's a direct pathway, then it becomes very practical to get strong support uh, from the union movement. And from so th those are the demands being made by the union movement. And people are finding them for a whole range of unions, and particularly those working, at, for example, representing people in the offshore sector, are trying to advocate for that. But we need the climate movement as a whole needs to fight for that and just to come to your question like what basically what do we do about this i think we need it's we it can't just be unions saying green jobs need to be quality jobs and actual real existing jobs when uh, when the climate movement says don't worry that we want to close your airport your coal plant your whatever because it will be good jobs then the climate movement needs to step up and make sure that those jobs are actually there and are quality jobs because it's only by coming together and building that joint power that we can actually shape that future. And that, that Green New Deal, that just transition, needs to be something that we are actually going to build. Otherwise, our promises are also, also broken and not true. Mika, let me ask you a little bit more about what you just said. And, and, and I'm kind of, uh, I want to ask you this because it's of great interest to me, but I also think it's important for the left to address uh, as we're thinking through the precise economic policies that we want to advocate for in a in a just transition. So, and and what I what I want to talk about is the supply chains. You've already mentioned this a little bit, namely the supply chains that produce wind turbines, which, like all capitalist supply chains, are spatially dispersed, um, are kind of segment countries countries into different roles in a global hierarchy, reserving the least value-added, most toxic, most labor-intensive parts of the value chain for the global south, or in some cases for peripheries within the global north, and reserving the higher value-added parts for global north countries, workers, and, and companies. Um, and so that basic inequality with some, you know, specific flavors to it uh, persists with the, with the wind turbine industry, to my knowledge. And I'm basing some of this on a Quite good, I thought at least, LRB essay by James Meek, which delved into the economics behind wind turbines. So, you know, in response to that, one response that I've seen uh, uh, leftists advocate for and trade unionists advocate for is kind of what it seemed you might be mentioning or, or proposing, which is onshoring, no pun intended, right? Because this might be offshore wind. But what I mean by onshoring is that you try as much as possible to domesticate production so that local labor unions can get the jobs and, you know, the local revenues of that um, filter out to the broader community. Um, the problem with onshoring is that it is in tension, to some extent at least, with a left commitment to internationalism and also to global equity around the production of these essential green technologies. So I know that's a big question. You can take whatever piece of it makes sense to you, but I'm just curious, like, how on the left should we confront these globalized supply chains? And um, is onshoring the answer or is something else the answer? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And I mean, it's a it's an ongoing challenge that we've, I guess, all been grappling with for, for 20, 30 years, not just in terms of energy, but also, for example, in terms of food, food production. Um, is it better to have more local food production here in the UK? Or is it better that we rely on food grown often in global south countries and very extractive uh, processes and um, the exploitation of global south labour to make sure that I can go and buy some cheap veg in the in the supermarket here around the corner. And um, and I guess 
that we can we can either try and maintain the, the yeah we can try and maintain the existing trade relations that exist to some extent i don't think that those deliver global justice uh, or uh, good working conditions in the global south um, does onshoring uh, in itself lead to better working conditions in the global south no um, does a more decolonial approach to trade that involves paying climate reparations sharing uh uh, sharing technology and providing the investment to create uh, global south based supply chains that support global south renewable uh, deployment do that I would say yes um, so for me the, the the outcome that I'd like to see would actually be that we yes have have a strong uh, supply chain in global south countries but that's not that's not purpose primarily to deploy offshore wind in the UK, but to make sure that we've got global <laughs> offshore wind deployment in Africa, in South America, in Southeast Asia. And at the same time, that in the UK, if we're going to have buy-in from communities long-term into offshore wind, people need to see the jobs in the construction phase, in the, in the manufacturing phase. We've got massive offshore wind farms being deployed now, let's say Dogger Bank, um, multiple wind farms there. Once those are running, they're going to be multiple gigawatts. Once those are running, you're going to have between 50 to 100 people working on them, maintaining them. That's not that many jobs for something on that scale. The, the significant job creation that can exist is in the phase of manufacturing and of building and constructing. And there we do need to see um, more local production. I've, you're, you're right in your general statement that the least value-added work happens in the global south and the higher value-added in the global north. But what's interesting, uh, I'd say, particularly, is that there's a lot of nuances there. And that the UK as a country that's deployed more offshore wind than any other country actually has very little of the significant value added. The jobs that exist here are most are the very final putting it out at sea, not the actual value added manufacturing process. Where those tend to happen is often in countries that have more active industrial strategies, where the state is more hands-on, where there's more public investment going in. That's where you see those. So, so it's partly about how prepared is the state to say, here's a new part of the economy, the climate transition, and we're going to support that existing here. Very interesting. Um, David, let me bring you back in. Do you want to address this question of jobs and economic benefits uh, and how those are kind of distributed within polities or transnationally um, uh, and, and in relation to wind power. Yeah, thank you. Well, I thought I was going to disagree with you, Mika, but actually I don't because you, you clarified that the employment is mostly on the construction and installation side. Uh, that's what I observed in Spain. I, I was in an area doing, doing research in an area with hundreds of wind, wind turbines that had been installed five to 10 years previously. And there were really a very small number of jobs on maintenance and, and, and running check, electrician kinds of checks. Um, this one of those wind farms belongs to the largest uh, wind and solar firm in the world, and they divide the world up into two hemispheres. Um, the dividing line runs through Spain. So southern Spain is actually in the western hemisphere. And that means that the off hours control room for this wind farm in Spain is in Mexico City. And controllers there will shut down turbines if there's a problem. So they're running in, an, in this automated way. Um, and it's 
bound to be that way. I mean, it's bound to be low labor because when you think about the kind of uh, uh, Marxian metabolism, the kind of where, where you often have an ecological rift, when you don't, what you don't have it here is um, extraction and you don't have waste. So you only have throughput. So if you compare, the, say, the coal commodity chain to the wind commodity chain, the wind commodity chain involves no lifting and no carting away and no mining and no disposal. So it, ch changing from fossil fuels to renewables is going to involve less work once the construction phase is done. Um, and I think we on the left should be honest about that. Um, certainly, um, the, the, the construction, of course, happens in a place and then it's done and then maybe construction and construction jobs move on elsewhere. But we have to be honest that there are going to be less jobs in the energy industry when the, the, when the, the, when the transition is done. And we also want that transition to happen very quickly. So then what happens to those people in those jobs? Uh, I don't have a good answer there. I think we have to think about perhaps longshoreman style solutions, which involve taking the money. The money, the accumulation is still the same because those megawatt hours are still worth the same amount. But supporting people who don't work, um, who once worked in oil and don't work, but still get an income from the energy sector one way or another. Uh, universal basic income is one way of supporting that. And if wind royalties are with publicly owned wind is bringing wind royalties into public coffers, then there's money for universal basic income. But, you know, I think, uh, I mean, the grand thing about the grand, the grand, what's really at stake here is that so many jobs have involved the destruction of nature um, that an economy which destroys nature less, or let's say just an energy sector which just destroys nature less, will have to find some way of supporting people beyond wages and, um, and a salary. Thank you. Thank you, David. Just to clarify, and maybe to disagree, since you didn't disagree with Mika, maybe I'll disagree with you, which is that I'm not sure I would say that wind turbines don't involve extraction. I mean, the materials to make wind turbines do come from somewhere. Steel is made of iron, there's resin and plastic, there's copper and aluminum. All of those originate in mines around the world, unless I misunderstand what you mean by no extraction. Well, no, all I mean is that in the operation phase. Understood. Extraction. So, and, and so I had the benefit of observing an area with a mature wind sector where all the construction part was already finished. So yes, mm. everything you're saying about uh, the mining, especially carbon fiber, very intense, energy intensive, um, and all that happened elsewhere and was already finished. Got it. Yeah. And I, you know, I have my research happens to focus on those extractive frontiers of green technology. So that's the first thing I tend to think of. Um, but you know, we need to take each of these phases of the supply chain uh, and look at their ecologies, their economics, and, and they are distinct. And I, I really appreciate this breaking down the difference between production and operation and getting into the nitty gritty of, of the job opportunities, the environmental impacts, each of those um, uh, for those different nodes of the chain. Um, I am going to bring us to a last question that is for both of you, and it's a big one. Um, maybe all the questions have been big, but I think for me, this is this is the one that will make us the most ambitious. I, I want to think about the po real political possibilities for implementing some of the ideas that both of you have proposed. And 
politics has come up several times in our discussion. We have talked about, you know, local community responses to to wind and and the politics of that. We have talked about the politics around labor's response and involvement in in thinking through a just transition. Uh, But I want to kind of think more squarely about what political strategy, given the political context right now in the U.S. and U.K., which are different in some important respects, namely, you know, one country has a right-wing party in power, one country has, I guess, a nominally center-left party in power, but in actuality, they're not as different as one might like. I mean, you know, coming from the U.S., maybe we would like much more of a distinction between Biden and Johnson, but in reality, their climate approaches are not that different. Um, And so, we could roughly equate them, though we should also keep in mind the the important differences in each context. But given, you know, the political parties in power uh, in the U.S. and U.K., what are the possibilities for a transformative political change of the type that we are discussing, specifically for the wind sector? But I think we could draw broader conclusions for other aspects of the energy transition. Um, what, who in your mind is the collective agent of change? So far, we've, I think, discussed two collectivities. One is the working class and, and, and labor unions, and the other are kind of local communities, economically precarious communities in, in Spain. Are, are those, you know, respectively for each of you, the collective agents of change? Are there some that we haven't addressed We've talked about the climate movement, but mainly to criticize it for not focusing on jobs or labor enough. So, you know, is is the climate, does the climate movement have a role? Uh, and then just a couple other questions, and they all kind of follow from this basic strategy question, which are what kind of tactics do you think uh, this this collective agent should leverage? Um, what kind of alliances should it build? And who are the primary opponents to a just transition? And whoever wants to take a piece of that first is welcome to. Part of it for me is this recognition that obviously society will has to and will change dramatically over the next 5, 10, 20 years to, um, to deal with the climate challenge. Society, the economy, <clears throat> how we work, how we move around, how we live, how we power our homes, that has to change on a very fundamental level. And um, and despite the, the, the colours of our government, I think they're because it has to change so dramatically, um, it will. And how I think there's a lot to play for, and especially the, I guess the, the pandemic context over the past past years shows that in in contexts of crisis and contexts of, of upheaval, governments do things that they're not used to doing. So <clears throat> we have a conservative-led government that uh, talks more proactively about industrial policy, about public investment that was basically paying the salaries for uh, millions and millions and millions of people in this country in a way that it's hard to conceive any of our recent Labour governments doing. Obviously, they probably would have in this type of context, but, but the context creates other political potentials beyond what we might normally imagine these these particular parties and governments to do. <coughs> and within that, there's then the question, well, who can force them? How do we force them to deliver that future? And I think it's important as we as we fight for that future. And when I'm saying we, I mean, I mean, trade unions as part of the climate movement, as part of local communities fighting together. It's an intersectional battle to build a safe and just climate future. But we need to be fighting for exactly that, a safe and just climate future and one that will continue to get 
buy-in from people that people will feel part of feel that they have some say as part of over time and i think it's sometimes because of the the desperateness of the climate crisis we we sometimes revert back to asking for scraps or at least accepting scraps that we um that we can be very excited and we the movement can kind of go yes it's amazing that this company, let's say Orsted, Danish, <coughs> largely publicly owned wind company, is deploying these offshore wind turbines and isn't that great and and can kind of give a boost to the, the corporate delivery that we are currently seeing in terms of climate action <coughs> and not include the, well, actually, corporate delivery, the current corporate delivery of climate action is at high risk of backfiring in terms of bringing people with it down the line. And that are we maybe leaving issues, there's a, there's a framing question there in terms of some fundamental questions about, <clears throat> about ownership. Are we leaving those off the agenda because of the urgency of climate change? And I guess the, David's point about, about resource and wind is um, it resonates a lot for me as someone who worked on oil and gas for a long time and has worked on oil and gas in... Uh, in North Africa and in the Middle East and where there was a very real battle to assert ownership of of those re of fossil resources because f in most of the world now not in the US is my understanding but most of the world fossil resources are owned by the state not not by whoever owns the plot of land it's just understood they're a natural resource they belong to the state and to the people ultimately and that therefore <clears throat> you're drilling from a plot of land you pay ground rent but you need to pay the state rent real not rent in terms of like demand but you need to pay the state for extracting that resource that belongs to the people and wind is a similar resource that belong and we i think set a, making that argument and going that achieving it as fighting for recognition that those resources that are going to power the climate transition have to be open owned by the people and we should be fighting for that as the climate movement as a whole because that's a necessity to achieve a successful climate transition it's not just about some jobs because that's a nice thing it's a necessity to actually achieve a successful climate transition thank you uh, for tackling that big question uh david yeah thea um Absolutely. I th thank you, Mika, for making that analogy with minerals. Um, it's strange that the, that the convention should be that wind is privately owned as a supra surface resource, whereas, as you say, in most countries, the subsurface resources are publicly owned. So I think there's there's very much the logic for a movement of wind commoning. Um, you know, to my, 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 my broader answer to your question, Thea, um, and I'm going to try to bring it back to the U.S. a little bit, to my own country and your country, um, in the context of two forms of energy democracy. Um, so or two connections uh, of energy democracy to other things. So there's a racial justice aspect here. 98% uh, of the land in the US is owned by white people. That's according to the US Department of Agriculture the last time they, they had the guts to do a study of this nature. So I, I wouldn't want to come to a situation some years down the road when wind is a very profitable sector, more profitable than fossil fuels, and find that 98% of that sector is owned by white people. That would be a perpetuation 
of horribly deep forms of inequality in the U.S., and we have an opportunity to, in fact, to break that cycle now with a wind commons. Uh, the second point is something we really haven't talked about so far, and, and this is not in my book. It's in some articles I've written for Boston Review, the magazine, um, and that has to do with bringing renewables into urban areas. Um, what corporations want to do is build large wind and solar farms um, out in the countryside or in really remote areas or offshore where it's hyper-efficient to do the installation. It creates fewer jobs in the construction, uh, even in the construction phase, to have these large, gigantic installations. Um, so the, the, the capital accumulation is larger. And, and it's depriving urban areas of that capital accumulation. It's also depriving urban areas of resilience because distant wind farms depend on the grid and on these high tension lines, which uh, in the case of a hurricane or a fire, they fail us in the deep freeze in, in, uh, in Texas, they failed us. And so what we need for resilience and for energy democracy is to have generation in cities. And you can do that through a wind commons and through different designs of wind turbines. I'm thinking of the vertical axis ones that can go on roof lines. And then I'm thinking on solar about a practice that I call solar homesteading, which is where community organizations reclaim wasted sunlight from privately owned roofs. Uh, essentially using, the, using the, the stick part of the old 1862 homestead to extend the public domain, to reclaim for the public domain underutilized resources. Yeah, so sunlight, like wind, is a resource that we barely see. Um, and in terms of the movements that could do that, yes, community groups um, and racial justice groups. Um, I would like, and I, I work in the labor movement on the on the in the academic labor movement, um, on in universe with universities and with um, labor unions of faculty and staff in universities to reclaim roof and parking lot space. And so one claim, one kind of bargaining for the common good demand that unions can make is to say that we want this roof and parking lot space or warehouse roof space. We want it to generate electricity for the health and safety of us and of the communities. Uh, so one could actually have a worker-led energy transition repurposing underutilized uh, horizontal spaces for solar generation in the context of energy democracy. Well, fascinating uh, responses, both of you. And I sense we could have a whole other set of questions, um, maybe another time around this issue of the scale of, of the energy sector, right? So so David is, is bringing up this point about uh, some degree of decentralization and, and distribution in order to buttress resiliency. There are, you know, competing ideas around nationalized transmission lines. And then there are ideas uh, such as those that we propose in our book, A Planet to Win, that combine national and localized in a sort of nested way. And so there's a lot to talk about with scale and the different en energy resiliency, but also um, job and economic distribution benefits of different scalar approaches. But I leave that for another day. Uh, Mika and David, thank you so much for joining me on this conversation. I've learned a lot and I hope listeners have too. Um, and yeah, I, I hope that it was pleasurable for both of you as well. Uh, it Thanks was. Thank much. you so much. Yeah. Thanks a lot.